This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Please turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 20. I understand you did hear a message on this text last week. Um, I asked the session and they said, just go ahead and do what you were going to do. So that I will do. I hope I hope it's not, or maybe I hope it is similar to what you heard, because um, I'm sure that Rocky did a just fine job with it, Uh, but we are tonight going to look at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. We are near the end of John by my estimation, Lord willing, and no more food poisoning episodes intervening. We'll finish it in about three weeks, so it's been a long journey through this book, but we are nearing its end. So tonight we look at John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word tonight, this glorious word of the resurrection of your son who has conquered death, who has conquered sin and Satan, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the glorious truth therein, that you would write it on our hearts, that it would give us the hope and the confidence and assurance of your gospel and of the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When Jesus died, as we looked at a few weeks ago, he cried out, It is finished. And those words were comprehended, the glory of what his sufferings of the cross accomplished. He had fulfilled all righteousness that was lacking in fallen sinful man, so that those who he called from the foundation of the earth could be saved. They could be justified. They could be declared righteous in God's judgment. Because though they had no righteousness of their own with which to contend, they had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. But a question that remains in light of Christ's death is this. How can we know? How can we be certain that the redemption we have in Christ is sufficient, is adequate, can actually do what we have been told that it does. Christ promises to provide for us a verdict of innocence, a verdict of righteousness at God's judgment seat. But how do we know that that is sufficient? In other words, where do we find the vindication of Christ? that we can know for sure that it is finished. For if Christ had said it is finished and died and then stayed dead, we would have substantial cause for doubt. Anyone can say that they will die for the sins of the world. In fact, some besides Jesus have said just that, but they lie or they are deluded. Christ's vindication, and in it the certainty of our justification and vindication, comes in Christ's resurrection. Many have come to the world promising salvation, declaring themselves to be God or promising a way to God, but they are proved false when they die and they stay there. They prove themselves false when their alleged prophecies and declarations about God don't come true. But what about Jesus? Jesus had told his disciples that he would die, many times in fact. And he did die that Friday outside of Jerusalem. He was buried in that new tomb in the garden by his unlikely friends Nicodemus and Joseph. But Jesus had also told his disciples that he would rise from the dead. For instance, in John 10, Jesus told his disciples that he had authority to lay his life down, but that he also had authority to take his life up again. In the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus talked much of his departure, but he talked of a reunion. Jesus said 
he was coming back. Unlike the many false prophets and false gods of false religions, would Jesus actually do it? Well, we come tonight to the part of the Gospel of John where we get the answer. And the answer is a clear and undeniable yes. We will look at the glory of Jesus' resurrection tonight in these first 18 verses of John 20 and in three points. First, an abandoned tomb in verses 1 and 2. Sunday comes and that tomb where Jesus was definitely laid and no one else was suddenly empty. And second, astonished disciples. In verses 3 through 10, Peter and John go to the tomb, but they have some different but fascinating reactions to what they see. And third, the appearing Christ. In verses 11 through 18, Jesus reveals himself very much alive. So abandoned tomb, astonished disciples, and appearing Christ. Those are our points for this evening. First, we look at the abandoned tomb in verses 1 and 2. We see at the beginning of chapter 20 that Mary Magdalene went to the tomb where Jesus had laid. Now, Mary would not have been the only one who went. The other Gospels note that other women went with her, but for whatever reason, John only notes Mary Magdalene's presence. Now, Mary and these other women were coming with spices to anoint Jesus' body. We know from before that Nicodemus on Friday had brought some spices for this task. It's unclear if these women brought more of the same or a new batch. It was possible that how Jesus died on Friday afternoon and the Sabbath was looming. There wasn't time to do everything necessary to prepare the body, so they had to leave with the plan of coming back Sunday morning to finish the job of anointing Jesus' body. Of course, this is providential. Whatever their intentions, it would be quite a shame for Jesus to walk out of that tomb and for no one to show up to see and notice. So Mary comes to the tomb and finds that the stone in front of it had been rolled away. While John did not record the circumstances of the placement of that stone, it was a security measure, because grave robbery was quite common in that day. Putting a big heavy stone in front of the tomb would make it hard for people to get inside and to steal things. Now similarly, again, though not reported in John, a Roman guard was placed there. Because the leaders of the Jews remembered that Jesus had said he would be raised from the dead, and while they didn't believe that Jesus could actually do that, they wanted to make sure that none of Jesus' disciples would steal the body to stage a resurrection. Well, their evil plotting backfires on them spectacularly, because what they have done is create a situation where the resurrection cannot be faked. If there's reports of a resurrection as there were about to be, they weren't going to be able to explain them away. The resurrection was going to be the genuine article. We see as we have so many times God working even through the evil plots and actions of his enemies. In their efforts to oppose and silence Jesus and to stop this movement around him one last time, they make it all the more undeniable and unstoppable. 
But I'm getting ahead of myself. So Mary finds the stone rolled away from the tomb and no body inside. So she comes and tells Peter and the other disciple, this is John, once again, not using his own name. Now Mary initially is not seeing this as a resurrection. She thinks someone stole and moved the body, despite the security measures. After all, she was there at the crucifixion. She saw Jesus die. Like John, she probably saw the soldiers not break Jesus' legs and saw them pierce his side so that the water and blood flowed out, these being signs of a sure death. If you see someone die, especially if you see someone die like that, brutally, violently, and with multiple confirming witnesses of death, you don't expect to see that person come back. But a more thorough investigation of the matter is needed. And this brings us to our second point. After the abandoned tomb, we come to astonished disciples in verses 3 through 10. Upon hearing this report from Mary, Peter and John want to go check the tomb out. And with some urgency, in fact, we read in verse 4 that they ran to the tomb I had something of a foot race, which John seems to find it important to record that he won. So it has stood recorded in Scripture for the past 2,000 years that John could run faster than Peter. Because the Bible doesn't always have to be serious. In some places it can, in fact, be quite amusing. But leaving that aside, since John gets there first, he peers inside. And he sees the linen cloths lying there that Jesus had been wrapped in. Though he doesn't go in until Peter gets there and goes in first. Now Peter also sees the cloths lying there and he sees the particular cloth, the handkerchief that would have been around Jesus' head, neatly folded. Now this is not a mere meaningless detail. If the body was stolen, it probably would not have been unwrapped there on sight. Whoever would have taken the body would have likely wanted to rebury it somewhere else and probably wouldn't unwrap it at all. Or if they did, <clears throat> if they did have some other use for the body, they still probably wouldn't unwrap it until they got where they were taking it, just because it would be uh, very difficult to transport an unwrapped body. And even if for some reason someone would steal and unwrap the body on the site, why would they bother folding the headpiece? Given that they would have had to get past a Roman guard and a heavy stone to unseal the tomb, a lot of trouble, if someone were stealing the body and unwrapping it there for some reason, they probably would have just tossed that handkerchief aside. But on the other hand, if Jesus wakes up, he's raised from the dead and finds this thing wrapped around his head, then he might be so inclined to neatly unwrap it and fold it and place it off to the side. See, this detail points us to this not being what you would expect to see at the scene of a grave robbing. These details are recorded to make it clear what really happened. As many lies and slanders would arise about Jesus and his disciples. 
It is even recorded in Matthew that the leaders of the Jews, upon hearing about this, told the guards that we're going to be in big trouble to tell the people that the body was stolen. They would even take care of the trouble with their Roman bosses. And this became the common rumor and story among the Jews that Jesus' disciples had just stolen his body, despite the implausibility of them doing that given the circumstances. But John records the truth of the scene in the tomb because it testifies to how this was not a grave robbery. But how did the disciples react to this when they see it? Well, John says that he saw and believed. Yet he also records that the disciples did not yet know the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. So what does this mean? Well, later on, Jesus would appear to the disciples, and part of these appearances would be to explain to them how everything had happened according to the scriptures, and that all of the scriptures, beginning with Moses, spoke of Jesus. The most famous example of this was recorded in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus would appear that afternoon to disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he would, again, starting with Moses, starting with the very beginning of the Old Testament and going through all of it, explain how they testified concerning him. But for Peter, it's hard to tell what he makes of this. John doesn't say. Luke records in Luke 24, 12, that after Peter came to the tomb, he saw the tomb and the claws and went away, marveling to himself at what happened. And yet of himself, John records that he saw and believed. This means that even absent seeing the resurrected Christ, even lacking this insight into the scriptures that Christ would later provide, simply on the side of this empty tomb arranged as such, John believed that Jesus had been raised. Unlike Mary and seemingly unlike Peter, John had already seen all the proof he needed. And we see that Peter and John returned to their homes. Now imagine that walk. Peter goes away marveling, but it seems at this point he's not yet fully persuaded. John, for his part, believes. But what do you do with that information? On the one hand, you might think people need to know, hey, Jesus was dead, now he's alive. But who do you tell? What do you tell them? Would they even believe you if you did? Remember, dead people, especially ones you see die, they don't come back. It's quite something to ponder. So Peter and John, there's this sort of mixed reaction, and you see they just go back home. There's, there's nothing else they can do with this information, at least not yet. But so far in this account of the resurrection, we've seen all the initial evidence that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but we still have some loose ends. There are others who still need convincing, and where is Jesus? And this brings us to our final point. After the abandoned tomb and the astonished disciples, we come to the appearing Christ in verses 11 through 18. So John believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. 
Again, Peter doesn't really know what to make of this, and they go home. But then in verse 11, we see that Mary is still there. She is despondent. She is incredibly sad. She stays there, and she sits by the tomb and weeps. And then at one point, she decides to look into the tomb. Well, she sees something. Specifically, she sees someone's that were not there before when Peter and John were there. These two angels sitting there on the bench where Jesus had laid, one at the place of the head and one at the place of the feet. And these angels see Mary sad and weeping and they ask her why. Now this almost seems like a cruel question to ask. And in fact, If there had been nothing to see there but the scene of a grave robbery, it would have been a little rude to ask. And she answers, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So Mary at this point still believes that this was a grave robbery. Now put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment. She was close to Jesus. She was his friend. And she believed in him. Here she even calls him Lord. Think about everything that would have happened in the previous days. Jesus had triumphantly rode into Jerusalem, but within a week he was basically murdered. He was executed in a kangaroo trial brought by corrupt and jealous leaders on false charges. It was an abrupt and tragic way to lose someone you care about. And then to add insult to injury, she comes to anoint the body to do one last act of love and service for Jesus. And even this is denied because some thugs stole the body, or so she thinks. But then she turns around, and John records that she saw Jesus there, though she did not initially know who he was. Now, there could be any number of reasons why she didn't recognize Jesus. For one, as I mentioned before, she saw him die. Death is generally permanent, at least as it pertains to this world and this life. So again, if you see someone die, if you see their dead body, you're not going to expect to see them alive again. Your brain is probably going to have some trouble processing that if you do. Also, given Jesus' sufferings, the various tortures, down to the scourging and the loss of blood, it is possible that Jesus would have looked a little different. It's also possible that Jesus now being in his resurrected glory, could, that could have changed his appearance somewhat as well. But ultimately, he is sovereign even over the thoughts of his people. And he had so arranged things that At least the first time Mary saw him, she would not recognize him. So Mary sees in her mind this man she doesn't know, thinks, well, he's probably the gardener. And he asks, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? There's that question again. Poor Mary can't catch a break. But the additional question, who are you seeking, sets up the answer. For Mary replies to this man, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. 
At this point, she just wants to know where Jesus is and take care of the body. But she is in for quite a surprise. For Jesus then addresses her by name, Mary. And suddenly, whatever mental block caused her not to recognize Jesus was ripped away. At the sound of his voice calling her name, she knew it was Jesus and could be no other. And in that moment, all of her sorrow and agony and grief turned to the sweetest joy. She cried out, Rabboni, teacher. But there's no time to bask in the joy. Jesus has an assignment for Mary. He tells her in verse 17, do not cling to me. He understands how joyful and how glad she is that he's back. But this is only temporary. For as he just taught at length in the upper room discourse, it remains true that he will ascend to the Father. So he wants Mary to go to his brethren, the other disciples, and tell them that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is ascending. He says, to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now why does he say this? It is true that he will ascend to heaven some days from then, after he appears to his disciples and up to 500 others. But also he is asserting once again as he had, what he has throughout his entire ministry, his unity with God the Father and his, people unity, his people's unity with and access to God the Father through him. Those who were his people before his death remain his people after his resurrection. And he will go into heaven for a time to prepare a place for them, just as he said back in John 14. So that where he is, they will also be, but this time for good. Because Jesus has overcome death, his people will overcome death as he has. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is the validation of everything that he has said. That those who believe in him will not taste death. They will have everlasting life because his word to <clears throat> because his word is true. And he has done what is necessary to redeem his people and to bring them into that life. Now Mary, as she was commanded, goes and reports to the disciples that she saw the risen Christ and that he gave her these words. Now it is not insignificant that she is the first person who sees and speaks with the risen Christ. It's another detail that we in our day as we read this story could be inclined to gloss over. But we must remember this is the first century. Now, one of the issues in the first century is that the testimony of women, be it legal testimony or some other kind, it was generally not considered reliable and it generally would not be admitted. So why would Jesus first appear to a woman? He will appear to men later. He'll appear to his disciples later that day. But why Mary first? And why will Mary break the news to the disciples before they see Jesus? Well, there's two reasons. 
First, whatever distinctions divide and separate the kingdoms of men are not the distinctions of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not only come to be the Savior of Jews, but of Samaritans and of Gentiles. We've already seen this throughout John. And Jesus did not only come to be the Savior and Lord of men, but also of women. But also this telling of the news first to Mary, this Jesus appearing to Mary first, creates something that apologists and theologians like to call an embarrassment factor. Well, what does that mean? Because the testimony of women would have been viewed in that day as less reliable and less credible, the fact that Jesus' followers would record this shows that it is not a story that they would have made up. If they were going to steal the body and hide it and fabricate some narrative of Jesus being raised from the dead, it would not be this one. They would have made up a story where Jesus was raised and appeared to the most credible and reliable person possible who would say that he was alive. Just as the minute details of the tomb testify, so this minute detail of Jesus appearing to Mary also testifies that these events were true. If they were made up, they would have been made up differently. But they were not made up. Jesus was alive, and Jesus is alive. So, knowing that Jesus is alive, we return to where we began. Jesus said that he would rise from the dead, and he did. He uniquely can claim... <clears throat> He can, he can uniquely claim what none of those others who have claimed to be saviors and claimed to be able to provide a way to God can do. And that is that he has conquered death. If Jesus is raised from the dead, then he has conquered sin and Satan and hell. Death has died. Death has no power over those who believe in Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the confirmation that it is finished. Jesus died so that we do not have to die. And Jesus lives so that we might live forever with him. All that remains is for those whom he calls by faith to repent of their sins and to receive this gospel. And so receive forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life. And for those who belong to him, they will love him and serve him, and they will make this truth of Christ known where it has not been heard. Because this is the greatest comfort and hope, the comfort beyond all comforts, the hope beyond all of the hopes that this world could offer, the hope that Jesus lives and so shall we. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C 
www.thebigfootshow.com.